Years ago, at St. Matthew's Church in San Mateo, we had the Sisters of the Transfiguration there, and Sister Leoba, one time of the year like this, Christmas Eve, Friday, Christmas Saturday, Sundays right on top, she looked out at the kids at the school and said, you know, there's just been too much church. <laughs> this is the first Sunday after Christmas, and uh, the readings are largely similar to the ones on Christmas Day. Um, and so I'm going to preach about the Johannine prologue a little bit, but I'm also going to preach about the four affirmations that I talk about endlessly during this time of the year, which I believe uh, the Feast of the Incarnation Christmas is about uh, some affirmations about the nature of our humanity, God's yes to our humanity. So what does it mean when we speak of those things? And to say some things then about the introduction to John's gospel, which is kind of a template, I think, for understanding uh, the, the Incarnation. Remember, Christmas is a theological festival. It isn't, a, it isn't the commemoration of literal history. Sometimes with Wikipedia and Google and all of this business these days, people have got on to the fact that, that they found out that Jesus really wasn't born on December 25th. Like, this is a big revelation to Christian people. <laughs> so, so the... the uh, Fact is that um, we're proclaiming something theologically. Also, interestingly, maybe in anthropological terms, because Christians have been, I think, somewhat successful in taking festivals that have deep meaning to human beings that predate our own faith tradition and somehow uh, doing things on the similar dates so that, um, you know, when uh, uh, Nancy's relatives who for whom I think their Bible was years ago, the Nation magazine, would uh, send you a happy winter solstice card. And we were all happy to get it, by the way, because that's exactly what it is in addition. So uh, there it is. So let me talk about the four affirmations. The goodness of our humanity, that each of us can achieve the highest of our human potential, understood in Christian terms that Christian people are able to be joyful, understanding joy in a, in a spiritual sense as something that influences our emotional, spiritual, and mental states. And finally, that uh, Christian people are, not, are to be people of peace, and that this is not just a pious sentiment, but that the Bible is shot through uh, with many things, but also certainly uh, the Savior talks a lot about peace. So peace on earth is not just a pious sentiment. It's something that's important, and you and I need to know and learn how to be peacemakers in big and small ways. So that is one of the ways, being a peacemaker, where we labor for a society where it is easier for people to be good. That's something we want to have happen. The affirmation uh, of our humanity, the goodness of our humanity, it says in Genesis that God made the world, God made the cosmos, and called it good. I use the word cosmos not because I watched Carl Sagan's program, which I did, but cosmos is the word in the Greek New Testament for world. 
but it doesn't mean just world. It means bringing order out of chaos. Another definition of cosmos in the Greek dictionary is ornament. And I like to think this time of year when we think about um, the creation, that it is kind of an ornament uh, for God, and that each one of you constitutes uh, uh, one of God's ornaments. You bring a certain character and shape to the creation. God has a role for each one of us to play, and so we bring our own unique and special talents and skills and abilities to uh, that process. And as we center ourselves in God and become more spiritually mature, we begin to understand what that means. So on Christmas, we affirm the goodness of our humanity, that we are unconditionally loved, accepted, and forgiven by God. That is the default position, and the sense of relief and the sense of serenity that that produces has an empowering effect as we come to own it and accept it and believe it. So when we say that we can achieve the highest of our human potential, we're not talking about EST or some human potential movement. I don't know if I ever told you this, but many years ago when I was the rector of Christchurch Sausalito, I did a wedding, I performed a wedding for one of Werner Earhart's number two people. And he was there, the great founder of EST. When I first came to St. Luke's, I ran into some parishioners here who had gone down that cul-de-sac. <laughs> and Werner was there, and everybody greeted him with hushed tones. That's not what I'm talking about, the human potential movement. I'm talking uh, about uh, the achievement of the highest of our human potential as we understand uh, why Jesus is important to people, because he embodies someone who had achieved the highest of his human potential. And he constitutes the template that we lay over our own spiritual life and development. Jesus Christ, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. The template that we lay over how we understand God's purposes for us. So Father Thomas Keating, one of my heroes, many of you know this, talks a, a lot about that. And he talks about the incarnation in this way the achievement of the potential side. This process, God becoming a human being, involved Jesus assuming the actual human condition in its entirety, including the instinctual needs of human nature and the cultural conditioning of his time. You know, many people resisted this at the beginning. They didn't want him to be like that, just like us. They wanted him to be, you know, like a pointillist painting where he was sort of a wraith, you could put your hands through him, right? He wasn't really, you know, like us. He wasn't that sort, of a, that sort of a person. But he introduced into the entire human family the principle of transcendence, giving the evolutionary process a decisive thrust toward God consciousness. Jesus has joined the human family and has not just subjected himself to the consequences of the flesh, but also introduced the principle of redemption from all of the pre-rational programs for happiness that center around our lives, and they are these. Security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And if you stop to think about it, all of the sort of flashpoints in our relational lives have something to do with those areas. 
security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. All human beings engage in these things. It's natural. But the question is, is that when things get off the rails, it's obviously got to do with somehow one of these things getting out of whack. And so what we see in the Savior was somebody who was able, I hate to use this term, live a life of some balance. <laughs> right? And that may be an important thing to do. And achieving the highest and best of your human potential has something to do with that. So when I say to you over and over again that uh, being centered in God means being the best human being that you can be, it does not mean that you have to master an abstruse set of theological vocabulary in order to do that. You know, it's nice if you become a student of this faith tradition, but part of that is to be a good human being. And one day... If you do that, somebody's going to come up to you and they're going to say, you know, I've known you now for a while. I've been working with you. I've been doing this. I'd like to know how I get what you have. I admire this. You seem to be in balance. What do you do? And you will have, my friends, an evangelical moment. <laughs> the opportunity to share with other people your greatest place of safety and assurance being the best human being that you can be, and you may not use one theological word to do it. You may be able to commend to others what it means to be uh, a decent human being, and God knows there need to be more of those now, don't you think? In the spiritual life, when we speak about joy, we don't mean some sort of giddy hilarity. We don't mean somebody who is relentlessly cheerful. Did you remember those home shows? We love to watch the home shows, and I haven't seen... Wasn't there one called Home Time with Dean? And, and they were relentlessly cheerful. <laughs> and sometimes, gee, you know... I don't mean we want relentless curmudgeon. <laughs> no, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not an either-or thing. But sometimes uh, that's what we think about being joyful. Is it a relentless, you know, kind of Pollyanna? Is there ice cream, you know? Is that what we're talking about? In the spiritual life, joy is the confidence that the conundrums, the ambiguities, the uncertainties, and the difficulties of human living are going to come into surer and clearer focus as you live a life of intention. And that things that had been baffling to you in the past may become a little less so. And that hope that you begin to bring to this process, hope, honesty, openness, persistence, enthusiasm, is the means by which you're going to be able to confront those challenges and opportunities and develop some interior confidence that you're going to have a way to, to do this. Maybe without, um, one way would be to think, uh, after you get some experience in something, uh, and something like it comes up again, you feel a little less anxious, and you say, oh, I know what that is. I can do this. This is what I did here. So you feel some sort of confidence about that. That's joy. That's Christian joy. That ability to understand that. And also, we talked about this in the sermon discussion last week, that uh, learning to live with ambiguity is probably something that is going to help your spiritual maturity. 
your emotional maturity, your mental maturity, to be able to do that. And probably more than any other Christian faith tradition, Anglicanism has been able to live in that yes and no at the same time location. It hasn't been easy for us, and things come up from time to time. We're in the middle of a particularly um, annoying peace patch right now because some always wish to resist uh, this kind of ambiguous uh, uh, way of being. They would much prefer things to be far clearer than they are. So joy is the ability to sort of live in that and be okay. Now finally, when we talk about being people of peace, in the Bible, in the New Testament, Jesus would have used for peace the word shalom, the Hebrew word. And the shalom of God is not just peace like no war. It's not just the absence of conflict. Here's one of the things that Wikipedia is good for. Shalom. Completeness. Wholeness, health, peace, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfectness, fullness, rest, harmony, the absence of agitation or discord. All of those words are used as synonyms for shalom. So it's a pretty vigorous term. And when people use it, they mean business. And certainly Jesus did too. So if you're a person of peace, you're on board with this. Trying to do, I would guess that if we could do two or three of these pretty well, we'd be making some pretty significant progress, wouldn't we? In our spiritual, emotional, and mental progress uh, in God. So being a person of peace is a very important thing. We talk about this externally and relationally the way in which we get along with one another, the way in which we labor in the wider society to be the leaven and the lump, that we always err on the side of generosity and compassion. Remember, Anglicanism is also a faith tradition that says when God's judgment and God's mercy collide, God's mercy always trumps God's judgment. You've got to be pretty joyful to hope that that's so, right? But we believe it. And when we're operating uh, on all eights, I think that's what we reflect as Christian people in this Christian tradition that we're talking about here. In the gospel for today, we read from the introduction to John's gospel. If you really want to show off to your friends, you know, you're at some sort of a party and you get into religion and stuff, you can refer to this as the Johannine Prologue. And somebody around is going to go, whoa. <laughs> little 3995 biblical scholarship. We don't know whether this was an independent piece of literature and that the, the, the author of John's Gospel took it and uh, did some editing and attached it to the Gospel, or whether it was uh, went through a process of, of, of editing. But, you know, that's just stuff for biblical scholars, and we, get it, we got it in the form that we have it now, right? So it's about Jesus as the Logos, the Word. And logos is a lot like shalom. Logos can mean thought. 
speech, account, meaning, reason, proportion, standard, and my favorite, the organizing principle. So when we think about who Jesus is and what his coming affirms, maybe it's for us the organizing principle. In this man's words and in this man's works, we have seen words and works indistinguishable from the words and works of God. You don't have to believe that right now, but the author of John's Gospel did. And the community of people around that, that wrote that Gospel said, this guy, we've, we've heard him and we've seen him, and if God were walking around on the earth, this is who he'd be like. But more to the point... We weren't just watching a tableau. We weren't just watching some pointless painting six inches off the ground moving through, because John's Gospel certainly sounds like that, God walking on the earth. What the Johannine community said, this guy gave us tools that we can use. We can be like him. What Jesus Christ is by nature, we become through adoption and grace at our baptism. So by virtue of that, we can say, you know what, I have got some ways of being and relating now that are important because I've seen somebody who has achieved the highest of their human potential. What it means to say that you and I are made in the image and likeness of God. So every Christmas, we read the introduction to John's Gospel on Christmas Day and then on the first Sunday after Christmas, because it's probably one of the best theological statements about who Jesus is and the early Christians thought about him uh, as they reflected on his life and, and his work and his earthly ministry. So give thanks this week as you move through the first... Remember, Christmas is 12 days long, so it goes till January the 5th. It sort of ends on Epiphany. So you have 12 days. I hope none of you opening the presents have thrown any money in the fireplace in envelopes. <laughs> I mean, we had, I've told you this, in my family, we'd open the presents, and the fireplace was roaring. And my grandfather would say, don't throw any envelopes in the fireplace until you've checked to see whether there's any money. Your mother, he then turned to my mother. And say, your mother burned up $20 when she was a little girl in the fireplace. <laughs> My mother gets small on her body. <laughs> you know? So I hope you haven't done that or anything. I guess nowadays you can't really, those of, those of you who, who have newer houses can't have fireplaces, can you? It's no more fires, you know? Well, we'll talk about that another time. <laughs> Uh, give thanks for the Savior of the world, for the ability to be a transparency and a reflection of God's grace and love, which we're all called to do. Amen. Amen.